Hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. We are still doing a podcast. We were uh, waylaid last week by some technical difficulties. Investigation is ongoing <laughs> in the sabotage that, uh, that deprived you of last week's Extra Credit podcast. Uh, a dark day in the podcast wars. Uh, this aggression will not stand. But we are back this week. Uh, even though the World Cup is going on, we are still uh, podcasting, still reporting, still doing what we do around here uh, with one eye on uh, the start of the World Cup. Still a pretty busy week. Uh, you were um, out last week on the first leg of the uh, Funding Formula Committee's roadshow. Devin Bodkin picked up on the on the tour this week. Why don't you get us started, get, get us caught up a little bit about what we're hearing so far, what we're seeing, what, what you heard and saw in Boise last week. Yeah, this group, Kevin, as you know, now in its third summer of work, uh, this legislative interim committee is looking at recommendations to rewrite the state's complicated school funding formula. Uh, they've been at it now. This is their third year. They kicked off a new series of both public and closed-door private meetings last week, and they're kind of touring the state this month here in June with the idea that they'll come back in July and entertain some recommendations and possibly vote on starting to put together a rewrite to the state's funding formula. Obviously, that's a big deal. We've seen a lot of public interest in this, both in Boise and in Idaho Falls in the early early portions of the, the hearings and in the meetings. But we're talking about how we spend the state's largest budget, right. the, the public school budget, some $1.7 billion, um, and what we're hearing... And, and we're talking about rewriting a funding formula that hasn't been rewritten in a quarter of a century. So this is a really big deal because it, it's going to incorporate a lot of changes in the way we've been teaching kids and the way we teach kids now as opposed to 1994. And I do want to get to the process of it, yeah. the, the, the closed aspect of this process but first, let's talk uh, a little bit about the substance, what, what you heard on Thursday, who turned out, and what they had to say. In, I went to the very first meeting in Boise on Thursday, and I have to say, there was a high degree of public interest, and that sort of surprised me. Uh, but for a Thursday week night, night in June, yeah, uh, during summer night. vacation, 60 people uh, showed up, including Superintendent of Public Instruction Sherry Ybarra, who's a member of the Funding Formula Committee. A handful of legislators, uh, Representative Brian Kirby was there, Senator Lori Den Hartog was there, Representative Thomas Daly uh, was there, and many, many teachers, educators, a couple of schools, district superintendents. And I heard a couple of messages coming loud and through, and there are things that we've heard in and around the State House, in and around uh, school policy meetings before, but the number one thing I heard was educators all the way from teachers, classroom teachers, to building administrators were saying, we need some flexibility. Yeah. And the Fruitland School District Superintendent, Teresa Fabricius, and I apologize if I didn't pronounce that exactly right, but the Fruitland School District Superintendent came out there and she said, listen, our needs vary greatly in Fruitland, and I imagine that's the case in a lot of rural school districts. One year, we may have a lab full of computers and tablets that all need service, and so we need technology money that year. The next year, 
those machines are looking good, but maybe we have an influx of English language learner right. or special needs students. Then we need money for classroom aides, paraprofessionals, and professional development sure. tra- training. Mm-hmm. And if we have a rigid funding formula driven by some algorithm that we can't understand, is it going to be responsive enough to help us when maybe we needed technology money last year, maybe this year we're on to something else? That was a theme that I heard over and over and over again was the district officials from the superintendent to the school board to the building principals know what the needs are in their district, and they want to be able to respond to those with targeted investments, sometimes maybe changing from year to year or academic quarter to quarter. Right. Uh, that was one of the big things that we heard in that. We've heard that before, right? Right. No, that, that does sound familiar. I mean, there's been a lot of push on local control, a lot of push on funding discretion. I mean, that's why it's such an annual debate at the state house. Uh, what kind of money does the legislature put into operational funding, uh, discretionary funding, with the idea that this is uh, money that the districts can use uh, to respond to needs as they arise? The scene was maybe a little bit different uh, in eastern Idaho this week when, when Devin Bodkin was covering uh, the hearing. One of the recurring themes that he heard uh, came from veteran teachers wondering about how they will fare in the in the new funding formula, what what can they expect in the way of teacher salaries and teacher pay raises? Again, this is a recurring theme. We've heard these concerns for several years, really since the beginning of the career ladder back in 2015. The concern that while the career ladder does put money into the beginning uh, end of the salary scale, while it helps new teachers, while it helps younger teachers and has uh, resulted in pay raises at that end of the scale, really doesn't do much for veteran teachers who now will have to go through the, uh, the process of leadership premiums, uh, master teacher premiums, I should say. Uh, and it's really unclear how that is going to work, uh, how many uh, teachers are going to qualify for a share of the money, how much money will actually be available. Uh, so there's a lot of uncertainty there, not new uncertainty, because like I said, we've heard it before, but we heard it in the context of uh, this hearing, and now we'll kind of wait and see what happens in the other hearings. But that's the part that we know about. That's the part that's uh, in the open. Yeah. There, there is a lot of this process that's going on behind closed doors. You've written about this before. Bring our listeners up to speed about what's going on outside of public view. It's a little bit unusual. We've been covering state government and state government policy-setting meetings for a long time. They're taking a little bit of a new approach this year, and they're mixing it up with a series of public meetings, like we talked about, like we've attended. But also, alongside that, there are private, invitation-only, closed-door, they're calling them focus Focus group meetings, that are taking place by day, where I've been told um, that every single school district and every single charter school in the state of Idaho was approached and asked to participate and send a delegate to these meetings at the region closest to their local school district or charter. Um, But these closed-door focus groups are just that. Um, The public is barred from attending those. Uh, The taxpayers who are paying for this process, who are paying for the consultants, consultants, the consultants are from a group called Education Commission of the States, um, they describe themselves as a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. Um, 
the taxpayers who are paying for this are barred from this. The news media is barred for this. Interestingly, Superintendent of Public Instruction Sherry Ybarra and her State Department of Education staff uh, are barred for this. Superintendent Ybarra is a member of the Public School Funding Formula Committee, and she and her staff, uh, assuming she is reelected, will have to implement whatever changes um, come out of this funding formula and, rewrite. And the legislators, the legislative committee that will vote maybe as early as July yeah. on some of these recommendations, they're not even sitting in on the focus group meetings because they're not invited either. Yeah, it, it's interesting. And so a couple of different things going on here. I spoke with Representative Wendy Horman, an Idaho Falls Republican, who's one of the co-chairs of the Legislative Funding Committee. And I spoke with Michael Griffith, who is a senior consultant with Education Commissioner of the States. And they both told me um, that they wanted to structure this because they wanted this free-flowing atmosphere where folks would be comfortable speaking to concerns that they had with the existing funding formula without those concerns getting back to someone else or without having the news media misrepresent their views in public. And the specific example that Michael from Education Commissioner of the States gave me was he wanted a teacher to be able to speak up and share her concerns with school funding without that being perceived as negative feedback and getting back to either her local school superintendent or the state superintendent's office. And I said, okay, however, we have some concerns. And, and, and really, I got to tell you, as journalists, the thing we want more than anything else is to be able to stay out of the story, mm-hmm. to be able to stay on the sidelines and research a, restore, a story, figure out the debate, get quantitative and qualitative information, mix it in with our reporting, and then produce a story and, and sort of be a disinterested bystander. Right. That's not to say that we don't care, but we don't want to get wrapped up in a story, except but, when it but, comes to <laughs> transparency issues. And we are talking about the state's largest expense every year. One, what these meetings are devoted to are carving up the state's largest expense and, and figuring out how to most effectively spend about $1.7 billion of taxpayer money. And there's a legitimate concern that there are going to be very substantive potential changes talked about behind closed doors that the public and the legislature will have no idea about. You don't know what you don't know. Right, right. I mean, you can be a disinterested bystander, and that is really our role here is to observe and to report. But you can't observe... (laughs) Uh, you, you can't report on something that you can't observe. It's really, it's it's impossible for us to be able to give any kind of meaningful context to what's going on in these closed meetings. Now, they are talking about uh, providing minutes, but my, my understanding uh, of, is that the minutes are going to be so scrubbed down that we won't be able to tell who said what and in what context. Uh, that was one of the concerns that the Idaho Press Club raised in a letter to the legislators about these closed focus group meetings is that, well, you can't tell where this idea came from. Did it come from a school superintendent in an urban district? Did it come from a a superintendent in a rural district? Did it come from a teacher, uh, a business manager? Who who said this? And and in what context? You know, was it sort of, uh, you know, was there kind of a leading question that got to this? Was there kind of a heated discussion that got to it? Was it just this sort of even-handed, hey, let's go around the room, tell me what your top concern is, uh, no holds barred, no, nothing, uh, you know, no idea is a bad idea, no question is a dumb question kind of uh, you know, process? We don't know. Now, 
it's worth noting that this is not an open meetings law issue per se. Right. Because this isn't the legislative committee. It is this focus group being convened by the consultants. So while the press club has raised concerns about this, while we have our own concerns about this, nobody's suggesting that these meetings are illegal. But they are highly unusual, and they are troubling in the sense that it is really difficult for us to tell you and for you to find out on your own what exactly is going on here leading up to the public hearings that may shape what is being said and how how what is being said in the public hearings are, are being heard and how this may ultimately affect the finished product that, again, we may see as early as July. So the, the, this thing's moving along, and a lot of it's moving along uh, behind closed doors. And, and it's going to be happening pretty quickly. And they're looking to have recommendations to vote on in July so that they can piece together a detailed plan before winter so that it can be ready to go for the legislative session. That's our concern. Uh, it, we're not trying to say that someone broke the law here or that this is a legal problem, but we're talking about the taxpayers are paying for these consultants. The taxpayers are paying for these meetings that they're disinvited from. It's the state's largest expense every year. We tried to go. We specifically mm -hmm. requested to go, and that request was specifically denied. And, um, and, and, you know, I guess that's the the crux of it for me and kind of where the rubber meets the road for me is that at one level I can understand maybe wanting to convene a focus group where you want to talk directly to the folks who are dealing most, uh, you know, most intimately with this funding formula, the folks who know, know it the most, know it the best, and may have the most yeah. – you know, direct, practical, detailed insight into how you may want to rewrite the formula. I get the idea of trying to do a focus group. I get the idea that that's a different uh, public uh, process, a, diff a different process of gathering information than a public hearing. I understand that. I, what I don't understand and where I have issue personally as a journalist is, can you have the focus group meeting, have invited speakers, but have the media and the public observe the process, not participate. I mean, we don't participate anyway. We're reporters. But the public is you know, able to observe it and at least see how these discussions are going on and in what context. That's kind of where I, that I would, take issue here. That would be a best practice in my mind. Go ahead and have your invitations. Invite the same people. Have the same format with one change. Allow the public, and that includes literally the public or the media or anyone... Anybody wants to show up, right. ...to sit there silently and observe what's happening. That would be a best practice. But i got to tell you, when this public meeting kicked off in Boise, the consultant from ECS, he did, it did play out like an open forum. What are your concerns? There's no wrong answers. But he also said, if there's not public buy-in here, this thing is going to fail. And i got to tell you what, if there are any concerns with this with whatever they come up with, with a new solution to the public school funding formula, if there are any concerns, the committee has really given up a lot of its autonomy and put a lot of trust in these consultants. Yes, they're experts in their field. Yes, they've done this in other states. Mm -hmm. But if there are concerns or problems, I mean, that's a built-in uh, opposition point that so much of this was handled in secret. How can we trust it? How can we know what was going on? And so if everybody's not on the same table, if everybody doesn't love it, it could be a really messy, messy process down the road trying to get it approved 
and implemented. If educators don't trust them and don't buy in, this will be a disaster. Right, and there's a reason why Idaho hasn't rewritten its school funding formula in 25 years, and the reason is it's really hard to do. It's really sensitive politically. It's really sensitive at the school district level. There are going to be winners and losers. How you deal with that in the short term and the long term, that's really sensitive stuff. So even if recommendations come out in July, even if the legislative committee uh, signs on to the recommendations or signs on to some tweaked version of the recommendations, you still get get this through the legislature. This is a, a tough, tough lift. And as you say, I mean, the process does matter. And, you know, the process, you know, it could give critics one more reason to uh, be suspicious, uh, to be skeptical, to be cynical about uh, what's being presented to them. So, you know, we'll watch it and we'll be uh, at the public process as much as we can. And we'll definitely be there in July because that's going to be a critical hearing. But you and I both sat there, I believe, during the 2015 legislative session, when the career ladder was being debated. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was killed two or three times uh, before that passed. That was a difficult session that weighed heavily on the sponsors of that bill, many of whom did not return to the legislature yeah, after that no, term. I would think the career ladder was comparatively a walk in the park compared to what this is. Uh, that was tough. Right, right. I mean, and that was, you know... That was a stroll down the greenbelt on a sunny afternoon compared right. to this. But, you know, again, the same kind of dynamics at work. I mean, there was a lot of suspicion and cynicism about the career ladder because of, you know, it was seen as the the, the stepchild of the tiered licensure proposal. That Which came everybody out, hated. That nobody liked. Uh, teachers, maybe most of all. Uh, So there was a lot of suspicion. There was a lot of uh, consternation about that process. And eventually it it came, you know, legislators came up with a proposal that they could get through both houses fairly easily. It was, you know, at the end, the vote was fairly simple, but getting there was really difficult. Uh, It's going to be really difficult to get to any kind of changes in the school funding formula. And, you know, the process does matter. So we're, we're going to watch the process as best we can. We're going to try to explain it to you as best we can and, and keep tabs on it. But uh, that's what we know at this point. That's where we're at at this point. Yeah, I hope that explains a little bit of the reasoning behind our concern. It's not that I just want to go personally because it's me and I think I should be there. I think it should be a public process uh, and anybody should be allowed to be there. And that's what I don't understand. And that's what I would be very, very concerned about. Uh, if I was someone who was going to have to make a vote on this or help implement this. And quickly, before we we move on, not to belabor it, but to make a point that this process does work in other contexts. I mean, last summer, Clark, you spent a good chunk of your summer in what were basically focus group meetings, stakeholders talking about the state's plan to comply with ESA. You sat, you observed, you covered it. And And I think... Well, I know as a reporter, as somebody who, who reads our site and, and watches this stuff closely, I had a better understanding of what was going on by reading your stories about what was going on. I, and I don't sense you were at the meetings. I don't sense that uh, your presence really compromised the conversation. I don't get that sense at all. The people in there spoke freely, but also some good things came of having that be a public process. There were a couple of things that were in the ESA proposal that 
were discussed and debated and looked like they might be moving forward, but then we talked about them and I wrote about them and we made a change before we submitted the ESA plan to the feds. And it's kind of a technical inside baseball thing, but one had to do, they call it insights, but right. it's essentially sample size and reporting size. There was a discussion during those focus groups. There was some uncertainty. I wrote an article. The state got some feedback, and they made a change before it was, quote-unquote, too late, before this final product was delivered. And I think that that was a credit to a transparent process that Dr. Linda Clark and Debbie Critchfield from the State Board of Education and Carlin Laraway and some of the folks from Sherry Ibarra's State Department of Education put those together after they were consumed some concerns from education groups that they didn't know what was in the plan. They put together these meetings. They allowed the media in. They allowed the public in. And we had a conversation about what we liked and didn't like. And I think that's kind of an example of how it works when it's working right. well. Mm -hmm. We talk about things. We talk about what the good things are, what the bad things are. We think about it. We bring it to the public. Then we weigh our options, and then we make a decision and move forward. We don't know what's happening when it's going right. on behind closed doors, and that's my concern. No, and again, this is something we'll be watching closely as, as best we can in what is happening in an open forum and try to connect as many dots as we can along the way. Yeah, stay tuned for our coverage. Uh, the meetings continue next week in North Idaho, the public and private meetings. The schedule is on our website. I want to shift gears, though. We've got a couple minutes left today and talk about higher education. Kevin, as we've talked about, the state of Idaho is in the midst of historic turnover mm -hmm. in leadership in higher education. You heard uh, Boise State President Bob Custer's sort of goodbye to the business community this week. Uh, tell me about the venue. And, and, and President Custer made a little news on his way out the door, didn't he? It, it was a goodbye, but it was also something of a challenge to yeah. the business community. Uh, Custer talked about a lot of changes that he sees happening in the higher education landscape. A lot of stuff I didn't really get into in the story, but interesting stuff about how how digital learning is affecting the way students can access a, a college education. He even talked about the way digital edu digital technology is going to change the way BSU football fans can access yeah. uh, Bronco games. That he predicted that the next uh, football contract uh, for uh, for the Mountain West Conference, will include a, a Facebook Live component. He, he thinks that's almost inevitable. Um, but the thing that he talked about that I found most interesting, that I found really, uh, really interesting from a policy perspective, is he suggested, didn't recommend, but he suggested maybe it's time for the state to create local boards of regents to govern the state's universities. And he, you know, what he envisions here is a board that would have the ability to maybe decide how do universities spend their money? You know, where does the budget money go? Uh, a board of regents that will have the authority to hire and maybe fire uh, a president. Uh, a board of regents that may be able to uh, decide how to set uh, tuition and fees. Uh, doing a lot of the things the State Board of Education is doing now, and that's kind of what Custer's point, and he's made this point before, but. In this public venue, in the final weeks of his time as president, he put a sharper point on it. He yeah. said, the state board has too much to do. You've got eight appointees. They 
deal with uh, K-12 policy, they deal with higher education policy, you throw in some uh, varied and assorted other agencies like public television, and you've got an agency, you've got, you've got a group of appointees that has way too much to do. And we've seen it in the past year. You've talked about the turnover. Two university presidents have been hired. Uh, a third, um, you know, they, they couldn't find a successor for, right. for Bob Kustra. So that search will continue into 2018, 19, while the state board is also searching for a new president at the University of Idaho. Custer uh, called it a perfect storm. He wasn't really criticizing the state board's performance. He was just saying there's just too much here. Yeah. So this whole Board of Regents concept is interesting because private colleges have used this forever. Um, you know, other states have allowed public universities to set up boards. Yeah, even community colleges in Idaho yeah. have elected boards who, who oversee the colleges and have taxing authority because uh, community colleges are taxing districts. So his point is, you know, look, this is being done in a lot of different venues, and maybe it's something we should be thinking about. What's interesting is it comes at a time where a lot of folks in the higher education community, a lot of folks in the political community are talking about consolidating, consolidating some of the administrative work, uh, trying to save some money doing that. Governor to Otter took a, a stab at that during his final uh, legislative session. With the CEO proposal that... Uh, that Custer opposed, yeah. that the legislature didn't uh, sign on to. So it's interesting, and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. I mean, you can combine IT and personnel, I suppose, and, and try to save some money doing that while allowing uh, boards of regents to uh, have more of a decision-making authority locally. I mean, you could probably figure out a way to do them both, but it would be a really big change in the way colleges and universities function and the way colleges and universities interface with the governor's office, with the State Board of Education, with the legislature. So a big idea being thrown out by President Custer on his way out the door. We'll see if anybody kind of takes up the issue and, and kind of takes up the challenge to study it. But uh, it, it was interesting, uh, an interesting context because you had a, an audience of business leaders. You also had the governor in attendance. Uh, well, anyway, we'll see where it all goes. Yeah, I do. I, that's a good story. That's an interesting story. And the whole context, the whole backdrop is this historic turnover in higher education, but also within our government structures. As everybody knows, we're going to have a new governor next year. We may or may not have a new superintendent of public instruction. We have key new chairpersons in the legislature uh, on the Joint Budget Committee, on the House Education Committee, on the State Affairs Committee. And that's what we know even ahead of November's election. Right. Uh, somebody more. in leadership could lose. Another committee chair could lose. Um, things are going to look and feel very different in 2019 and 2020 than they did in 2017 and 2018. Yeah, absolutely. It's an important time for education, especially higher education. Before we sign off today, I do want to let you know that I'm at long last making progress on my story, taking a closer look it's sort of the mysterious nature of these presidential searches and these executive headhunters. I've spoke with some folks out of state, some university researchers who have been researching presidential searches uh, for the last decade or so. They had some interesting things to say. They were very surprised that Boise State's search ended without a candidate hired. I'll be able to report more on that. It should be in the early part of next week. I also expect to have an interview early next week 
with one of the executives or one of the consultants from AGB Search, which is the group that conducted three searches for the state of Idaho last year, two successful ones, Lewis Clark State College and Idaho State University, as well as the unsuccessful Boise State Search. Look for that, hopefully, hopefully the first half of next week. Right. And a lot more to look for at idahoednews.org. I take a closer look at the post-election sunshine reports. I give you a little bit of sense of where the money came from and where it went in the uh, governor's race and the state superintendent's race. So we'll get you up to speed on that as well. I think that kind of is a wrap for this week's edition. Yeah, as always, uh, thank you so much for listening. So sorry about the technical glitches uh, last week, whether it was sabotage or whether my computer just gave up the ghost after six years. We may never know, uh, but uh, thanks for sticking with us. The truth is out there. We'll try to find it. (laughs) Thanks for sticking with us. We always have a lot of fun and try to talk about education issues in a way uh, that points out why they matter to us, why they should matter to everybody else. We have a lot of fun doing it, so thanks for coming along for the ride. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.